Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. Get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com slash race. And whisper it when you type it in. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and the privilege of our pre, post, yet still very racial America. The shorter version of all that is about race. And yes, I'm Baratunde Thurston, back and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are my co-host Raquel Cepeda. Hola, Raquel. Hola. And Tanner Colby's out this week, y'all, spending time with his family in the Berkshire Mountains, so we finally have our all-brown episode. What, 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 That's what? Right. <laughs> I am so pleased to welcome my sister from another mister. We have a guest co-host, reporter, cultural and political analyst, uh, and columnist with TheIntercept.com, Farad Chidea. Thank you, thank what you. What up? Thank and you. she's my sister too, by the way. There you Absolutely. go. She's right. everybody's sister. She's everybody's sister. They here. just high five. You couldn't see it, but you <laughs> might have heard it slightly. A, a tap in the background. That was two sisters high fiving. So on this week's show, we're dealing with just two topics this time, y'all, because they're so meaty. The first, deaths in police custody. The second, why has it taken so long to believe allegations against Bill Cosby? And was he protected in part as a successful black man who many of us felt we couldn't afford to lose? Then we'll wrap things up with our famed segment, Yo, Check This Out, tips and recommendations for you. Uh, but first, let's check in with our co-discussants. Farai, what is going on in your world that we should know about? I've been doing research for The Intercept on a medical privacy story that'll be out soon. And one of the really interesting things was to find out how little regulation there is of fitness wearable devices like Fitbits yeah. and they, you know, they sell your data. It's anonymized, but a lot of the data can be de-anonymized. So basically just be prepared that, you know, the cyber universe is tracking your heart rate and how many steps you take. And, you know, if you're cool with that, you're cool with that. If not, read the privacy yeah, policy very okay. closely. I've been checking that out on an Apple app that comes with my phone that I can't delete. And I'm like, I didn't know I was walking this many steps a day. or, And I don't really know if I feel comfortable that having that information yeah. out there. Because okay. it's like, yo, I want to keep that to myself. You don't need to know how many steps I take a day. Yeah. Oh, maybe that'll help them improve their products. I'm actually an advisor to the Data and Society Research Institute. Farai, you should pop by there. I would love um, to. They look at the implications on society, race, all kinds of issues around big data. Mm -hmm. And so the work oh. you're doing is, is very consistent with the work they're doing. And any of our listeners who are really into uh, that nerdy stuff, which is going to define a whole future, uh, check that out. Raquel, what's going on in your universe? Well, on the, on the... Who have you beat up lately? No, I haven't beat up anybody uh, lately. Okay. I wanted to beat somebody up yesterday. Um, I started on the B side when we talked about, uh, I went to the Schomburg to um, give a, you know, kind of a talk challenging the one no narrative, the one story narrative. 
um, about, you know, Latino, the Latino experience, immigrant experience in New York City, specifically by way of my book, Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina. And I learned so much because it was really funny. They were so open that, you know, they started it off with, and I'm talking to a room full of teachers with, you know, I hated every teacher I had. Mm. I hated school. I'm very, you know, I feel very ambivalent even being here. Because I feel like, you know, you guys are going to listen to me, shake your head yes, and then go back and, you know, continue to miseducate our kids. But they were really open. And it was like, and I think sometimes when, you know, when you talk about things in a way that's kind of humorous or whatever, you can learn a lot. And they taught me something that I actually want to um, to learn more about, which is the pedagogy of discomfort. By, like, how we can actually solve problems or learn things or retain information or actually contribute positively to pedagogy to uh, educational paradigm by feeling a little discomfort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I went home and all of a sudden I read on Huffington Post that the conservatives have won and that an AP history is not going to be taught in a way that is more even. It's going to continue to um, put our founding fathers and all the white men, because it was only white men who yeah. built America, on a pedestal. No, we're lucky to be here. Thank yeah. you, white men. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Thank you white exactly. men. Exactly. So it was a yeah. high, and then it went crashing down yeah. to a low. Well, and, the, and that stretch, that's where the learning is. Yeah, that, that's where that the dynamic range of emotion. <laughs> yes, is, uh, I was so uncomfortable. I was like writhing in pain on my floor. <laughs> um, and, and I am, uh, I, w- I was sad to miss uh, episode uh, we missed you. nine, but I'm happy to be back for episode 10. Yay. And I was in Greece. I went to a wedding, beautiful wow. wedding. Uh, just a fascinating group of people. I have not ever been to Greece before. I, I jumped into the Aegean Sea. And we stayed in a little part of Greece called Monemvasia, which it felt very Game of Thrones. There's like a huge wall with a ladder going up to the top. There's these narrow streets like the streets of Marine where Daenerys Targaryen, you know, sends her unsullied out to like subdue the populace. And uh, folks have been living there since like 600 BC. So it's very strange to kind of almost be living and sleeping in a museum. But people still live there and still work there. And the views were unreal. Uh, the people were amazing. And my exposure to like the Greek tension uh, was limited to the one uh, getting into Athens and there being some tear gas and, and riots shortly when I arrived, but no part where I was. But the other is when I was checking out of the hotel, one of the other guests tried to pay with a credit card. And the hotel owner, who is the sweetest, one of the sweetest hotel proprietors I've ever met in any continent, was so upset. She's like, you know, we are struggling here. You know, our banks don't work. You paying me with a credit card is like not paying me at all. And wow. you know, can you please, please try to find some cash? Because this is not, yep. this isn't going to work. And I had cash because I had read the notes from the host, like, please try to pay for everything with cash. Uh, but that's, things are real you yeah. know, over there. And so, this is a very old society, but this this problem is, is going to be around for quite some time. So I was honored to be able to experience it. And I was also kind of humbled by the size of the, the crushing debt. Yeah. Uh, so did you come in with money or were you able to get money when you were in country? So I, I got money here in, in New York before departing. It turns out at the airport in Greece, I would have gotten a much better rate because they're so desperate for dollars that they would convert higher. So if anybody is going to Greece, and I actually encourage people to go, like the more you can support folks and buy from local merchants, et cetera, that's going to feed a family, like legitimately. Uh, but you can change your money right at the Greek airport. You get a much better rate than uh, than New York City. And, and I have one more question: yeah. Is it as xenophobic as I've as I've read, as and heard? It might be. I didn't personally encounter any of that, nor did it come up in any of my discussions. So I don't have a total systemic understanding of of, of Greek attitudes toward foreigners. Uh, in my case, it was a lot of gratitude, and, and I was still, I was black when I was there, 
too. Were you really? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sometimes I you have like a switch like, that I can okay. put on, but yeah. I, I thought like, that when you got sun, you reverse tan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we get into episode? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a smooth segue that is. <laughs> <laughs> Gear abruptly. <laughs> Gearbox busting transition. Uh, Raquel, why don't you take us to our first story? So, uh, Danielle Rivero and Fusion reported that in 2012, the latest year for which federal data is available, 73.2% of inmates who died in jail for any reason had not been convicted of a crime. That's 698 people. The largest chunk of those deaths, 348 in total, happened within the first seven days of being booked into the facility. Now, that's pretty freaking disgusting. And July has been a particularly gruesome month. In July alone, at least five women have been found dead in jail. Renata Turner was only 43 years old. She was from Mount Vernon and a mother of eight. She died in jail. Kendra Chapman, allegedly, she's 18 years old, and was reported to have committed suicide in a jail in Alabama on the 14th. Joyce Cornell was 50 years old, an elder, and on the 24th was found dead in a Charleston County jail. Rakina Jones, 37, mother of one, was found dead in Cleveland Heights jail on the 26th, and possibly most infamously was Sandra Bland's death. 28 years old, a woman who just landed her dream gig at her alma mater was we saw it on video, on this edited video, by the way, this heavily edited video, was taken out of her car. Her head was slammed. She was arrested for assaulting an officer, even though her hands were tied behind her back and her face was being slammed on the pavement. I guess in Texas that constitutes assault. This woman from Chi-Town was found dead in her cell on the 13th. And they're saying that she um, killed herself, but her family and friends don't believe that to be the case, and an investigation is ongoing. Also, two Native American people were found dead in their jail cells. Sarah Lee Circle Bear was a Lakota woman who was 24 years old and had a one-year-old child and a two-year-old child, and she was jailed on just a bond violation. These, A lot of these are all nonviolent, by the way, offenses, um, alleged offenses, and she was found in Brown County Jail in South Dakota. And last, we have Rexdale Henry, an activist of the Choctaw Nation who was 53 years old and in great health, who uh, the day after Sandra Bland on the 14th was found in a Mississippi jail with two broken ribs, and he was put in there for a failure to pay an old fine. However, he was the second man to die to, in that jail. The first one was uh, that we know of, at least that's been reported, has been Michael McDougall, who was found dead on November 2nd, 2014. What I want to say is going to get me a lot of hate mail, so I won't say it, because what I feel about cops is like, for me, I wish they would just dismantle the whole entire system, because I think it's not working. I think we're not hiring the right people. I think that when you dismantle and build it up again, you need to actually give these guys like a mental evaluation of some sort, because the shit is like, I just don't understand how even with cameras, with videos, this shit is still happening. We learned about Sam DuBose, who actually wasn't killed in jail but was shot by the University of Cincinnati policeman for what? I still can't figure out for what. 
he po- this man posted bail because he can afford it. His father put up $100,000 and he's out free uh, waiting to show us to pre- present the second body cam that's going to actually tell us exactly what happened and show that Sam Dubois, a father of 10, who was only 43 years old, attacked him in some way and deserved to have to be shot in the face. So um, what are your reactions? It's been a mix of grief because I that's where my emotions go. I used to go more into anger, but I think as I get older, I go into grief because I can imagine what these families are going through. There's hope because I do think that cell cam video is the equivalent in our era of the civil rights news footage that people had to watch over dinner. It's mm. like, you know, you, you're watching black children in the 1950s get hit by a water hose, and today we're watching people get shot and killed. And it may eventually desensitize some people, but right now people are like, wait, this is America? I mean, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people are having a reality check about what's been going on in this country simply because of the power of the moving image and also the still image. So that part is the hope. And I think that the last part is that... I also see, you know, hopefully some reform in the criminal justice system. There is certainly a move locally in New York to reform Rikers, long overdue. There's some moves by the president and some of the Democratic presidential candidates to work on dealing with nonviolent drug offenses and incarceration. Last thing is that I actually think police officers deserve more support because I believe a lot of them are living with PTSD and some of them will tell you that, you know? I think people in Mm. the streets are living with PTSD. Of course. I'm not, it's not an either or, but if you are living in a mental state of siege and trauma, which I believe some police officers and some citizens are both dealing with, then it's like you're having sort of a virtual Gaza type situation. And We definitely need Mm. to stop it. But while we think about ending, like, I don't think it's realistic to dismantle the police department, but I think it's realistic to say, can we stop the code of silence, identify officers who are severely mentally ill at this point, and then also get everybody some help and retrain? Yeah. I felt more hopeful when I saw Rodney King being caught on video. I thought that things were going to change then. And all those guys got away scot-free. I was hopeful when I saw Ray Gardner being murdered slowly on video. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, finally something's going to happen, and nothing did. So my, my reaction is uh, fatigue. You know, I think it's similar to fry to your grief. Where, like, it's very scary. I don't get as angry as I used to. And by used to, I mean like a year to two years ago. After actually the Trayvon verdict came out, I just cried. It, it, wasn't, even, it, was, it wasn't even an angry cry. It was like a defeatist cry, and I just played songs that I thought captured that mood which made me sadder. I think there is, um, there's an exhaustion. This all feels so very large and it feels intractable. There are some signs of hope. And I think to to counter a little bit, Raquel, of like the Rodney King to now, like what happens with the University of Cincinnati police officer who killed Samuel DuBose, the tone of that prosecutor, his language, he called the police officer asinine. Mm -hmm. He said this was totally unnecessary. I think the political climate has changed significantly since the Rodney King era to the point where a prosecutor doesn't have a knee-jerk 
protect my police, you know, attitude and where there's some political price to be paid for not acknowledging the severity of this. There's more apologies to families for the deaths of all these people, which is so unnecessary. My, my fatigue also comes from the sense that we're capturing too many people to begin with. There's mistakes in every system, so I'm not, I don't ever expect police to be perfect. I don't expect criminal justice to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I, I make typos every day. Luckily, my, my words on the screen don't have life and death implications. Exactly. That's what I was but there's an say. error in every human endeavor. So, right. I, But the idea that failure to signal a lane change, failure to have a front-facing license yeah, plate that's... leads you to be incarcerated, that that death was avoidable because that circumstance should never have been in place, that leads to, to, to more of, of the sadness and the kind of like the sense of being overwhelmed. You know, with the size of, of what it, we're it trying is overwhelming, yeah. to change. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think dismantling the cops will work either, but I do understand the impetus for it. But the, some of the solutions that we're clinging to, the body cam one especially, I want to return to the Data and Society Research Institute I mentioned at the top of the show. They've issued a paper about body cams. This is not a panacea. When we, and I'm not saying you think it is yeah. either, Farai, but I, I think that there's... I agree. Back in the 90s, we thought we just put computers in schools... And that's going to close the achievement gap, right? And that's going to get more kids into right. college. And we're going to be able to compete with China now because we got, you know, computers. We got like Apple II GSs in, in our classrooms. And so I don't you know, slapping cameras on cops. There's questions about how that footage is stored and who has access to it, how we interpret it. I just heard a man on the radio this morning saying, when I see that video, this is what it looks like to me, murder. But when a jury sees, you know, some, we get disappointed by these juries who see this, like Eric Garner. It was a perfect case. That was like very clear footage. But the result was not lining up with how at least those around this table and most of our listeners had, had interpreted that. So there's something deeper than video that's got to get at the, the mindset and the hearts of the folks who have this life and death power in their hands. I'm just feeling the weight of it. I'm also feeling the weight of it, which is why I'm so angry. And because yeah. I deal with, you know, I just deal with like, and I think it was also brought on because I was taking the train very, very recently and her, and saw this, this uh, what do you call them, police cadet? And I you know heard him speaking in Dominican Spanish. Yeah. And he said, and I'll, I, mean, I can't quote him, but I'll paraphrase it in English. He said something like, you know, if somebody even looks at me, I'll yeah. get him. Yeah. You know, nobody's ever going to look at me or treat me like with disrespect. You're going to respect me. Yeah. And he was like holding his bag like this and and like patrolling the car. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, like these, menacing. Yeah, like but menacing. doesn't he yeah. sound, and the- I'm just like, freaking are you like what is wrong with you hmm. but but can't you imagine and you know i'm projecting here but give me give me a little latitude okay can't you imagine him being four years old and scared by a bully by maybe a bad parent or a bad teacher and having that kind of reaction when i grow up i'm gonna be the tough guy i'm yeah. gonna be you should that box. sounds very that's you shouldn't <laughs> be a cop because no, i was i, I, I was you, i but... was severely severely abused as a child no severely I'm, and I'm... i am sometimes surprised that i'm here and I guess I'm glad you're and, not a police and officer. And I'm not, and I would never have ever, I would never own a gun. Yeah. I would never, I would never, because I don't know how my rage is going to come out. I take it out in exercise, yeah. in, in boxing, sometimes even in my work, in the, in, in sometimes in the way that, you know, in the, in the vibe or the aggression that, that is, I exhibit in my work sometimes. Yeah. And I admire you for that because you're someone who processes your stuff, but not everyone has. And. It sounds like he probably should not be a police officer and there needs to be a better job of that. But when I hear that, 
I'm imagining a four-year-old yeah. in a police officer's outfit. With a gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a, with a gun. It's a kid and it's gun. really scary. And you power, know, yeah. and um, power. We, yeah. The, um, I'm not saying that I'm cutting him any slack, yeah. but I'm saying that those yeah, words are so childish. I'll give myself the excuse of like having studied philosophy. I like to jump to another side sometimes. And I can see cops being very, very frustrated with the time we're in right now. Because most yeah. of them are not this bad, right? Most cops are not... Mm-hmm letting people die or actively killing them. And if they are, there is a very good reason for it because they're being shot at, right? Or they're being set up in some way and they, they, they have a dangerous job uh, occasionally that you know makes them be persistently afraid often. Um, but the idea of very, very nice policing uh, and like that demand for respect that you talked about, like that's the more extreme version. But the everyday encounter of, I have to command a certain amount of authority. I'm outnumbered, right? As a police officer, I'm patrolling this area. There's all kinds of crime going on. What are they supposed to do? I guess is a real question. That's obviously they not should, killing people. They should protect and serve and yeah. stop bullying. Yeah. As somebody who was, you know, and I won't tell the story now, but I was bullied when I was in labor with my first child and by the, by the cops. Mm-hmm. And I almost lost my daughter because of it. My experiences with cops have been very very negative and I actually tried very hard at one point because I like to challenge myself and I want to change and I want to grow and I want to not see you know I don't want to see people as a monolith and I don't want to think that every Mm -hmm. cop is bad so you know I have a neighbor who I try to befriend who's a cop and she ended up being like a complete racist yeah and it's like I'm like God please live up somebody live up to we need to put a do not disturb zone around Raquel Cepeda no, I just want to meet. I just want to see humanity in them. I don't see it. I've had good and bad experiences with police. It sounds like all your experiences have been, been horrible. Negative. Been the worst that possible. But to take Farai, your notion of trauma, like what we ask of them, right? As a society, we say, "Be prepared for anything." We say, "Terrorists are coming, and you got to know about it before it happens." We say, "Somebody's holding a hostage situation. You got to be prepared for that." I don't know. There's some compassionate tone. That is a, a way, a path through this that I think takes a little bit into the trauma that you're talking about, Farai, with the weight of the job that's being requested, while we also demand more respect and seeing people as human. You know, if we think about the the white fragility, you know, there's also some police fragility, and it's like, how do police we fragility. talk to cops and and talk with them about how to improve this? Because antagonizing. And like cops are bad, we got to stop. The, that's that's just gonna make everything worse. They have they're white people with guns, you know. And like that's that's beyond talking about race. That's like enacting a certain dark vision of it with uh, a lot of state power to kill. So I just want to put this out there. I want like you know if we have any cops that listen or people in law enforcement who listen to our show, write in. I'm at well we are. <laughs> I don't want to tell you where I'm at. But we are at showaboutrace at gmail.com. That is showaboutrace on gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter at showaboutrace. And we would love to hear from you and um, read some of your feedback and actually hopefully listen to some of your feedback um, for the next B-side. There are two threads that I keep on hearing in this conversation. Not our conversation, but the conversation at large. And one is to dismantle the system, as uh, Neil Barsky said. Um, Neil Barsky from the Marshall Report talked about it as it relates to Rikers. Right. And that's something that I grew up and I just never even thought it's even possible because I grew up knowing about Rikers and having friends who didn't commit crimes, who were of color, who were put into Rikers and just languished in there. And the other one is reforming our bail system. 
And I think that uh, the Pretrial Justice Institute lays it out beautifully, and we'll definitely uh, put that in our show notes for you guys to see and weigh in and, and write us about also it. Also linked to the John Oliver piece Oh, I was bail. just about to say, John Oliver just rocked. Did you watch, see that? No. That piece on, uh, on how the bail, you know, bail system works and how it kind of targets, you know, especially brown and black people, right, mm-hmm. Farai? Yeah. Um, and, and just poor people, too. Yeah, and poor people. Folks oh, he's get, the debtor's prison piece that he did. Uh, it, it's no. it's yeah i mean i don't know i don't know if it's called the debtor's prison no but it's effectively that. yeah it's effectively yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's so basically we're, we're just we're just fucked yeah we are kind I'm of sorry. No, we're just, not we're just i'm trying to feel hopeful i'm trying to get my obama on i don't feel that hopeful and i'm just like fuck man because look, i have kids too that's why like, I don't feel i'm thinking hopeful, about huh? the michelle alexander new jim crow book where she right. just like so effectively depresses you <laughs> but the idea that we cannot escape slavery Right, essentially, like we we recreate slavery in Jim Crow, and then we we recreate it in the criminal justice system, and maybe we'll, as the data and society folks are starting to hint at, that's not a formal policy. We'll recreate it in a surveillance society. We're right. all free. We're actually all captive by each other and cameras and and Fitbits that track us. So, the the idea of God, there's so many pieces, and that you know the whole system is corrupt um, and set up to like. Over police a certain community, over prosecute, over arrest, over set bail, uh, under listened to, and so the people who suffer most from this are the ones least capable of kind of uh, escaping the trap. Folks can read. Yeah, it for yeah, definitely. Yeah. So right. anyway, but John Oliver talked about you know how it works, and you get picked up for something like forgetting to pay a fine, which mm-hmm. happened to a friend of mine not that long ago. He just forgot. Yeah. So you go in there. You can't. I mean, you can't miss work. You're gonna get fired, even yeah. if you're away for a few for a few days, right? So what happens is, okay, then I have to plead guilty, because I got to get the hell out of here. So then I go into. I have to get into bed with a, with a bail bondsman, yeah. and no matter what happens, whether you're guilty or not, they take a percentage. And then what happens is, it just gets worse because they can employ any almost any tactic to hunt you down. As a matter of fact, reality shows have been spawned. Just on oh, this like whole a, sport yeah, of yeah. hunting, not Cecil, but hunting black, mostly black, brown, and poor white people to pay somebody down here yeah. to pay somebody yeah. back. I think we're gonna have to close out this topic. Okay, um, Farai, I'd love for you to take us to maybe like a happier place with a different story. So to help lift us out of our <laughs> police state funk, uh, let's acknowledge the people who help make this show possible: our advertisers. Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has over 180,000 audiobooks. You can download the books and access them on a bunch of different devices. You got your iPhones, Android, Kindle, iPod, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book to try out that we're going to recommend, Arc of Justice, a saga of civil rights and murder in the jazz age. That book is a beautiful and ugly, at the same time, historic tale of a black family that moved into a white neighborhood in Detroit in the 1920s or 30s, and they faced mobs of angry white people, a very active Klan community, and set a legal precedent in the courts that went to the highest court in the land, argued by some very, very famous lawyers working on behalf of the NAACP. This is a dramatic, real story that is a part of U.S. history most of us don't know. Beautifully told, uh, very good education for all of you. So check out The Arc of Justice, a saga of civil rights, on Audible. Face it, you like listening to us. We assume you like listening to other smart things. This is a smart book. Audible's got you covered. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. You can get a free audiobook and 30-day trial 
today by signing up at audible.com slash race. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash race. Farai, please bring us back down. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill Cosby, uh, pound cake and jello, and there's a lot of desserts and quaaludes <laughs> in this story. So, Were there quaaludes <laughs> in the jello? That's, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Quaalude jello shots. What do you, right. what do you think? Um, anyway, Bill Cosby, for years, had probably lived under an assumption that all of the women that he allegedly molested or raped, um, and I say allegedly because I want to be legally correct, although I believe the women were molested and raped, the statute of limitations was gone or he had reached a settlement. But there's a deposition scheduled on September 30th, a civil case brought by a woman who says that he molested her when she was 15. And so because of that, even though it was many, many years ago, because she was a minor, she can still press a civil case in California. And that's not all. 35 women posed for a cover story in New York Magazine. And it's a really powerful image of all these women sitting in chairs, just telling their stories. Everyone from the model Beverly Johnson, women who were quite young when he assaulted him, women that were mature women who he knew well, who considered him a friend and mentor, and other ones who were pretty much strangers. But something came up that I think is really important, which is the issue of how do you deal with the fact that Bill Cosby was near sainthood in terms of blackness. You know, there's this idea that he was the universal dad in his sweaters, you know, with... <laughs> with sweaters. Yeah, in, 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 you know. sweaters. You know how, you know, those... Yeah, those fuzzy sweaters. Yeah, yeah. What are they? Kooky? Or how do you pronounce it? I, uh, I know what the word you're thinking they're, of. They're going to they're gonna revoke my black card because I can't it's remember right. how... Coogee. Coogee. Yeah. Coogee yeah. so, Chagulia sweaters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good one, <laughs> bringing it a little Kwanzaa. Yeah. But something that came up both in the um, New York Magazine story and elsewhere was this idea of not bringing a black man down. Right. Um, Beverly Johnson talked about it definitely in one of her TV interviews. And then also in this New York Magazine story, there's a woman named Jewel Allison who says, I had a few moments where I tried to come forward, but I was just too scared. And I also had the extra burden of not really wanting to take an African-American man down. Mm. And so I think as we think about this story, there is this idea that I want to discuss with you guys about racial protection, that we protect our own. If you think about, uh, obviously, in the, the context of policing, the sort of wall of silence, you know, when anyone is accused of a crime who is a police officer, there's a wall of silence. But there's, there also can be this idea on a good side of protecting your own when your own is in jeopardy and your own deserves protection, but then it can be extended to people who don't deserve it's protection. It's the stop, the stop snitching campaigning. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, that's mm-hmm. not good. Well, <laughs> but you see where it comes but from. But it's, yeah. it's right? just ironic considering that Bill Cosby hasn't protected his own. Yeah, oh, not at all. I mean, he's, I remember... He's, he's leapt down the throat of his own. <laughs> yeah, and I, re- I remember um, 
really clearly when his son Pat when was killed. Yeah. When he died, when he was murdered by a racist, and he and Bill Cosby was like, "Oh, it's really about you know guns and not racism." And then he said it again with Trayvon Martin, and then just the fact I think what pissed off so many comedians, even from back in the day, people who try to emulate him, like Richard Pryor, for instance, who ended up just making a career out of just kind of like dissing him the whole time. And Eddie Murphy was that, "Yo, this, there's no brotherhood here." And now today, and Hannibal, the way Hannibal Burris even delivered that joke, there was like some kind of like animosity, I think, in it. Because it's like, yo, this guy's telling me to pull my pants up and telling me how to live and act, but he's raping women. And that's been out. And yeah. some people are saying that it would not have been such an uproar and it would not have been, it would not have caught on had a man not um, brought it up. Oh, yeah, I definitely believe that. But I mean, how do you think that this whole idea of not taking a black man down was one factor. I think it's a, yes. I think it's a huge part of it. I think when there are other areas uh, where people protect like a prominent, successful figure, and it's not always racial. You think about athletes and universities, or athletes and professional leagues, and they have similar dynamics where they're making, they're representing a community very well. We're proud Tar Heels or whatever the the team and the university is. They're making money. They're attracting people into the field, and there's a often subconscious calculation that even if they're doing some dirt, it is far outweighed by the good that they're doing. And and someone like Bill Cosby played off of that. I mean, he's on the board at Temple University. He has this endowed chair, had this endowed chair at Spelman. He's always repping HBCUs, like always. So he wasn't just a good one. He was a good one who, in many ways, repped all of us. And he played the respectability politics. Great example. Like, he created a whole fantastical show which said, hey, America, black people can live like this, too. We can be doctors and we can have sassy wives and there can be respect between this couple. And things can, there can be a multi-generational, politically savvy black family that looks a lot like your family. So he was maybe the best example of the star athlete getting protected because he wasn't just doing it. It wasn't just black people. It was like America. And everybody had an interest except for these women and those who cared about them in not digging too deep into this. Because even if he raped a few people or fondled a few people, look what he's done for HBCUs. Look what he's done for American culture. Look what he's done for NBC. That's a lot of financial and cultural interests, you know, in his preservation. And I think we, we were all uh, unwittingly often or subconsciously complicit we in were propping complicit, up, yeah. you know, because and then, and then they ask, you add one more layer, which is the hunting that's going on, what we just talked about with cops mm-hmm. and state murder and, and the idea that black men in particular are the target of so much violence by each other and by the police and by the prison system and the achievement gap and it's all about black boys and black men and what's going on black women are going to college at rates higher than black men now like we can't we, our numbers can't afford a loss like we we can't lose one more black man to anything so even if they did it it came in a very bad right? time it's like oj right yeah. we were like we knew oj was exactly. dirty but come on man this yeah. is our one chance yeah this is our one and shot actually, to that- get the prosecution to, to pay for everything lapd ever did we're willing to let O.J. murder this woman. And actually, right? as far as like Bill Cosby goes, do you guys remember when he came out? Um, something came out where he had a child. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. we forgave him his indiscretion then because we were like, yo, while we're eating pudding, we're like, okay, just, yeah. let's just forgive him. Let's just forgive him. But actually, Beverly Johnson was, um, her piece in Vanity Fair was the one that really struck me the most because she opened it up with race. 
And the thing that stuck out to me was when she said he was funny, smart, and elegant. All those wonderful things that white Americans didn't associate with people of color. Mm-hmm. In fact, as I thought of going public with what follows, a voice in my in my head kept whispering, black men have enough enemies out there already. Yeah. They certainly don't need someone like you, an African-American with a familiar face and a famous name, fanning the flames. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's how she that's opened so it. Look at that. I'm getting goosebumps. And that's how she opened this piece. Wow. I mean, if, if you think about, like, there's some obvious downsides to racism, right? I think that's the understatement of that's this whole understand. podcast. Yeah. Right? There's some obvious downsides. It's pretty gross to understand. Yeah, but, but, like, people can think about racism as, like, oh, that makes people of color suffer. And then if you add, like, at the inner circle of racism, you go a circle out, and it's like, well, it's also the oppressors suffer, too. Like, Tanner's talked about this as a white person on the show. He's like, I don't want to raise my white kid in a racist environment. That's probably makes them a worse person. Their ethics and morality are all thrown off. They have a sense of superiority that is unjust. So that's, that's bad. But the other thing is, like, the corruption that happens within us as the people of color is not just, like, oh, the boot of white hegemony on our necks. It's that we, are, we don't report the violence and the crimes against us by us because we think the, the external crime, the external group crime is so much weightier that we're willing to deal with that. And so we, we protect the Bill Cosby. We don't snitch on so-and-so because we don't want to send another black man into the People system. People are still and defending Bill Cosby, by the way. Yeah, and, and that's uh, too bad. Yeah, because, That's you know, a lot of times, like, <laughs> He's for achieved example, escape velocity from the race in terms of protectionism. But you know what happened, too? Like, a lot of people didn't grow up with fathers or fathers they hated. Mm-hmm. I used to hate my father. I love him now. But it's like, I always wanted Bill Cosby to be my dad. You know, and I remember, like, a friend of mine, he helped her get into to get a scholarship to a, a historically black college and a track scholarship. And I remember one time I was like, you know, he was like an idol. I was walking uh, past West 4th Street and he was like there watching a basketball game. And I felt somebody giving me this like, mm, this look, this like growl. And, mm-hmm. and I turned around and he was like star- like undressing me with his eyes. And I called her like, oh my God, my dad just... And she's like, girl, he's not your dad and yeah. everybody knows. Wow. People who kind of knew. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not, I had no interaction with him. I'm just saying that look was enough for me because I was like, this is my dad. It's for him, you know, he yeah. was a dad to many people. Yeah. Or the ideal dad. So uh, how, does it gonna, how is this going to end for Bill Cosby? Go ahead, Farah. Well, no, I mean, I, I was actually just thinking about, you know, the, the general gender dynamics um, and, and a comment from well pre-Cosby by Stokely Carmichael, who said the only pr- position for women in SNCC is prone. You know, this idea that, that you know, uh, during a time of great social change, women were supposed to lie back and take one mm-hmm. for the team. Mm-hmm. I think that there has to be a recognition that hopefully comes partly out of this exegesis over Cosby that there's no good time to cover up sexual assault. Yeah. You know, that it's not bad for the race to speak out. However, there's going to be a transitional period if there ever is a time where we really evolve, where a lot of women are going to take a hit. Even, you know, these 35 women together in solidarity, I'm sure they're getting hate mail, yeah. you know? But you know what the positive to lift, let's lift each other up out of this funk too. For me... I almost teared up when I saw Lily Bernard's video because she said, out of this terrible happening, we have formed a sisterhood. And now we've become extended family. And we were aunties to each other's daughters. And when she stopped and couldn't continue and started crying, 
the other two women, I think it was Victoria Valentino and Barbara Bowman, came and embraced her. And that's how it ended. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, wow, that was a, like, my arms are just full of goosebumps. And, and on the other up note, I mean, that Stokely Carmichael quote, that version of the movement for liberation and justice is not the current one. Yes. And when Agreed. you look at like the, the leadership of Black Lives Matter, you've got trans people. Right. Yeah. You've mm-hmm. got all kinds of shades of color of blackness and brownness going on in there. It's a much more inclusive movement for justice. I think consciously by by many, subconsciously by more, we're realizing that it's like justice for all or it's not justice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we definitely want to know what you think of this whole Cosby case and how it's going to end. Um, definitely get us your voice messages and your emails for the B-side. Let us know how you think Cosby will see justice. Will he see justice? And also whether things have progressed to the point where women who have been violated are willing to come forth more often, regardless of race, but including this issue of protecting black men and not wanting to tip over the racial apple cart, to use a horrible metaphor that really has nothing to do with this story. But um, but in any case, I like it. We, I like but, it. but we want to hear from you on the B-side. Showaboutrace at gmail.com, y'all. Showaboutrace at gmail.com and all the other social media things. It's show about race. So look, that's the topics for the day. I know we only did two, but we got so deep and meaty into them. Uh, that we wanted to to give them both their due. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. I was a poet. Didn't even know it. Uh, our final uh, segment, as you guys know, is Yo, Check This Out. And uh, Raquel has been shuffling through a lot of paper, digging uh, for just the right file. Raquel, what is this thing that you want people to check out? Well, I went to see uh, The Young Lords in New York an exhibition that's going uh, on actually at three in three different places, but I saw the one at the Bronx Museum, and I'm going to put it up on our show notes, and it's really amazing, and it's actually there in the Bronx Museum, also at in the Lower East Side, and at the Museo del Barrio. So all the information is on the website. What I'm going to recommend for people to do is, even if they're like on the other side of the coast, on the West Coast, on the left coast, to take a plane, come to New York City, then call Uber if you must, or take a yellow cab if you must, if they'll take you, and go to the Bronx. Check out Young Lords in New York. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing show about the Young Lords and about the Puerto Rican liberation movement and how the Young Lords, who were inspired by the Black Panther Party, came about and fought for self-determination and how some things are the same, some things haven't changed, and how we've progressed in some ways and how some ways we haven't. It's, I think it's over in September at some point. But anyway, it'll all be on there. Cool. Farai, what do you have a recommendation for our listening community? Yeah, I have a piece by um, NPR Code Switch blogger Gene Demby. Um, we were talking earlier, and I'm I'm always butcher his name, Wyatt Sinak. Yeah, that's perfect. Oh, that was not hey, butch- That was a butcher. perfectly carved. Yeah, we talked about tradition. his incident with um, with Stewart, and so this is called on Wyatt Sinak, Kean Peel, and being the only one in the room. That's and a great it, piece. I yeah, it really is, yeah. and it and it. You know, without over-describing it, it just gets into how difficult it is to be the only black or brown person in the room and, and you know, having to stand up for yourself or, 
you know, give in or sometimes compete with the other black and brown people yeah. for the right to be the only person That's in the right. room. That's right. And it's, I, it's really a good read. I double recommend that uh, as well. My recommendations, uh, two things. Uh, one, the day that many of you, hopefully most of you are downloading and listening to this is Tuesday, August 4th. And it's a national night out. It's actually a night out for safety and liberation. Visit nightoutforsafetyandliberation.com. This is starting a different conversation about what public safety even means. It's piggybacking off this idea of national night outs, which is about police community partnerships. But the Ella Baker Center and Rock United, which is a, a collective of restaurant workers, uh, this week in blackness, so many groups have come together to reframe what public safety even is. What is a police community relationship going to be? So the hashtag is NOSL15, night out for safety and liberation, uh, dot com to check that out. And on a whole different note, because uh, we've had some heavy stuff uh, on this podcast, what with the serial rapist known as America's dad formerly and the incarceration and suicides and killings of people uh, under the guise of public safety. I want to send you all out on a beautiful video. Uh, the bit.ly link is bit.ly slash brown parks. Uh, this is a movement to diversify national parks. In the United Amen. States. Amen. I go camping yes. in yes. parks. And I State, basically grew up in national parks. National, camping. I mean, black people, get your butt out there. Yes. You know. Are you both from D.C.? No, uh, no I'm from, from Baltimore. Baltimore. So, but I'm to from me, DC. but you understand that as a New Yorker, I just don't get it, right? To me, Baltimore is DC. And that's a problem with that's a problem with me. I have city so many of them thinking it's the center of the universe. You can actually, I know, I know, you're right. <laughs> you you're can take right. you can take Metro North to the Appalachian Trail, my friend. Yes, we should take Raquel. I like uh, up to the mountains. <laughs> uh, so, so this video is, is do what with me? And it's just let you <laughs> I'm breathe. Scared. Just let you breathe. <laughs> And enjoy these Harvard people. Deepen your relationship with Mother Earth. Camping is one of the cheapest ways you can amuse children. I just went camping. First of all, I need to defend myself. I went camping last month off the canyon of the at the main Grand Canyon, and they'll have a super reservation. I took a helicopter to go down to hike to a campground. So there. Yeah. yeah. So there. <laughs> so there. Did you enjoy it? I freaking loved it. There you yeah. go. And I sometimes go up to Woodstock. I love Woodstock and Kingston. And, you know, I take hikes, you know, Good. that's close Good. to camping. Right. Is that close to camping? Yeah. Yes. You're okay. Just being in nature. I love give, nature. Given everything we've talked about today, one of the most healing things you can do, this is for your spiritual Agreed. self, for your emotional self. Is go out and breathe some real air, is see the real skies, put your feet in sand and dirt and water and touch something natural, not man made, but earth made. And that's the true indigenous culture of this planet, well predates our species. So, uh, black and brown right and yellow and all the folks, uh, be less fragile, be more embracing of this natural world around us. And we're paying for it. They're national parks. So uh, <laughs> if you're in the U.S., you are subsidizing this. If you're around the world, you're probably helping subsidize it because America kind of dominates a bunch of things. This has been uh, the Yo! Check This Out segment. Thanks, y'all. Our producer today, A.C. Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven every day, Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. Follow along and join our ongoing social media conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Show About Race. And of course, email us with words 
or audio files, showaboutrace at gmail.com. And be sure to check back in about two weeks for the B-side of today's episode and to hear the next one. That is it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of myself, Farai Chidea, and Raquel Cepeda, we won't stop until racism.